Good day, mate. 40 here. It is a rainy Sunday morning here in Sydney. It is 9.53 a.m. January 22nd. And there's a terrific Richard Hananya Substack essay where he argues that the media are honest and good. Uh, what the hell is he talking about? So there is a podcast discussion between Richard Hananya and Michael Tracy. So let's join that. Much longer than I expected, but I didn't begrudge the length at all. It was a, it was a warranted read. So, That's Michael um, Tracy speaking. Yeah, what a, I mean, people should look it up, but I'm just sort of curious, what, how long in the making was it? I mean, have you been pondering over the subject for a while yeah, or yeah, just, maybe just, just briefly summarize what it is yeah most substacks i've been thinking about for a while sometimes for years and then i just finally get around to writing something something's messing in my head pondering no, actually over the subject for a few days uh but yeah i mean i you know my motivation was i think i'm just so sick of these stupid people on twitter like you know I, I, we, <laughs> that's, you know, what we all, that's what we're all motivated by primarily nowadays I mean, you know we criticize the media and we say oh they got this wrong and they did that but it's like you know the people i've just been watching and i think it's got dumber since elon musk took over i was sort of excited when elon musk took over i thought like oh we're gonna have you know just less pc and less censorship but it's like it seems like there are some really really dumb like right-wing people have been uh emboldened um and they're just they're just dumb i mean like like you know they're like their critiques of the media are not like fair you know it's like oh uh you know here's this headline of like the new york times saying x and then here's that headline of like new york a different op-ed columnist like six months later saying why like oh the media <laughs> credibility nothing makes, you know, nothing makes like they caught they caught the hypocrisy yeah i have a uh i have a, uh, a thread of like uh, those people who are going to davos and like harassing klaus schwab and you know the, the it's all so dishonest like i saw one you know these people have like hundreds of thousands of followers they have more followers than you know major like new york times journalists and one of them was like you know they had a, a, a 15 second clip from uh uh the uh, davos and there was some saudi guy was there and the saudi guy was just like you know there are gonna be no cars there's gonna be this that i knew what he was talking about he was obviously talking about no you know the city that they're building out in the desert i know that's the plan like no cars like no and this person just took this clip and said the saudi Saudis went to Davos to, to take away your cars, right? Basically. And it's like, okay, Saudis like don't want people to use cars. Like, you know, their entire economy is like oil, right? It makes no sense. It's just so stupid. <laughs> and, and they're just like, and they're, they're just doing this, like, you know, like nothing. And, you know, for all, like, we complain about the New York Times and Washington Post, like these people with huge followers who criticize their media, they're a thousand times worse. I mean, that's the dumb people on Twitter. And then, like, if you go to conservative media, it's not as bad as, like, these, you know, the stupidest people on Twitter, but it's pretty bad. I mean, they're not giving you any information about the world. If you go to Breitbart's front page, it's just like Biden farted, uh, you know, Biden's economy sucks. Um, you know, it's, it's like, it's like, you know, it's like a Hannity, like, it's like a website of just like Hannity segments. I mean, there's nothing there. There's no information. Like, you're at, you avoid the partisan stuff. You avoid the really biased stuff. And you can learn things from the paper, right? You can go to the science section or you can go to the business section and you can learn, read a great article. You can read about Myanmar's civil war. And, and just like people who criticize me, they don't produce any knowledge, right? They're just, they're just grifters. <laughs> right. um, and so I got, you know, I got annoyed. I'm like, yeah, I've been like with you people, like criticizing the media for a while, but it's got to be tempered. And just to say like the media sucks and the media, you know, they're, they're terrible. And a lot of people just like, you know, they make their entire, uh, they make their entire sort of public profile of just like trying to discredit the New York Times. It's just not healthy. And I, I, I don't think, yeah. You know, so a few. Potential qualifiers here to raise. Okay, so you're complaining about the news media. Well, well, have you considered this epic rant here from, from Canada? Right, there's that uh, Canadian hockey player who didn't want to wear pride regalia. Three things, technically. Provorov also spoke to the media after the game, and and echoed what Tortorella said. So I didn't feel the need to run it. Um, this happened in baseball last year with the Tampa Bay Rays. There were five members of the Tampa Bay Rays who wouldn't wear a patch supporting gay rights. Mm -hmm. And Major League Baseball didn't do much. It was a story for a little bit. Um, John Tortorella, you know, uh, many years ago, when, um, you know, racial injustice, and it still is to this day, but when, racial, when, when Colin Kaepernick first started kneeling during National Anthem, said, anyone who does that on my team is going to sit. And he has a, he has a son who's an Army Ranger. So it's not like Tortorella in the past hasn't spoken on, on, on sensitive issues. Um, 
the theme from the National Hockey League is hockey is for everyone. Okay? The theme is not hockey is for everyone, dot, 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 unless you don't believe in gay rights, then do whatever you want. If the National Hockey League is going to do this, if any league is going to do this, do it properly or reevaluate what you're doing. Because there's not a lot of repercussions that I'm seeing from any league. Now, it could change with the NHL. could change with the NHL. I think you find the Flyers a million dollars for this. I'm not kidding. Figure this out and stop offending people on nights where it's not about that. It's supposed to be about inclusivity. The National Hockey League need to attack this and figure this out. Because what I heard last night was offensive and didn't make any sense. Because, for instance, if that was a military night, okay? Right. If anyone in Canada or in the States on a military appreciation night wouldn't wear a jersey pregame, do you have any idea the uproar that would have happened on that? Mm-hmm. Do you have any idea the backlash? Do you have any idea what happened on social media? It's, it's, it's ridiculous what would well, happen. And it was just a minute ago we were talking about the uproar that was happening with FIFA fever, where it's, if you were seen with so much as yeah. a rainbow anywhere, you had to fear for your life, imprisonment, or death. Yeah. Seriously. So, and now here we are. I, I just think the NHL has to do something here. This is not good enough. This is not good enough. Hockey is for everyone, dot, 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 unless, unless you don't agree with gay rights, is not the phrasing of this. You're either in this or you're not. And one last point. Nothing scares me more than any human being who says, I'm not doing this because of my religious beliefs. Because when you looked at people's lives, you normally say that publicly, you'd throw up at what you saw. You would throw up at what you saw. And I have seen that a million times in a lot of different ways. So don't, don't give me that. With respect. Don't give me that because no one's perfect. All right? Don't, tell me, don't, don't feed me the religious beliefs line. And all of a sudden, the NHL is going to back off this. The National Hockey League today needs to find that organization a million dollars and reevaluate how they support gay rights. Because that is insulting. That is the number one trending topic in Canada. That is insulting what happened in Philadelphia. And if the NHL is serious about this, they say they are. We'll see. Mm-hmm. We'll see how serious they are today. But that whole thing was mishandled. And, I, and I, part of me couldn't believe it. Part of me could, considering how the NHL sometimes handles things. And it's too important, and that's why you're continuing to talk about it, because you're not just going to brush it under the rug. Well said, Dean. Yeah, just less uh, crying because the the National Hockey League is not sufficiently supportive of gay rights. And again, the argument that it's offensive is just three things technically. Kovarov also spoke to the media. Just a completely subjective argument. And Richard Ananya has a funny remark. He says, "This is a strike against physiognomy." One could imagine this guy easily having been casually sexist a generation ago, making edgy race jokes. Now he's a blubbering fool, demanding that everyone wear gay pride. So we have Richard Hanania discussing whether the media is honest and good with Michael Tracy. So Michael Tracy here is pushing back. And I'm not going to do justice to the entire article because it's very long and worth reading, but just a sort of uh, smattering of thoughts here. And this first one relates to you saying what you did just then. I've always been of the mind that there actually is real value in media criticism. It's always been a significant component of what I do. I try to incorporate it into other forms of analysis that I might engage in. Uh, you can even incorporate it into reporting to some degree. I know you don't, aren't really doing reporting per se, but it's not like reporting is this exotic concept that you can only do if like, you're a certified journalist or whatever. It's a pretty straightforward just process of gathering information and using reason and uh, adherence to the facts to check it out for accuracy and then report it in an intelligible comprehensible way that sort of adds to collective understanding in some sense. Um, I always thought that that kind of 
report that reporting can often be enhanced by a like, kind of underlying media critique, right? So, and there are even like historical examples of this. I.F. Stone, right, um, who had his own, he, had, he was on Substack before there was a Substack. He actually had a self-funded uh, newsletter that people paid for and he printed and sent all over the country and he did some of his own reporting, but a lot of it was media criticism because he had like sort of a unique skill and depth of knowledge where he could uh, curate articles and clippings from a variety of sources that most people would have had have access to or like the time or means of finding on their own and criticize them and, uh, or, you know, add additional context. There was a lot of foreign policy stuff, particularly Vietnam for a span of time. Um, but that was sort of his bread and butter, at least a big element of it, right? And even today, I mean, Glenn Greenwald, when he first started blogging, it was largely a media criticism blog. Um, and I guess I have to have somewhat revised my perspective on the value of media criticism only insofar as now because everybody's a media critic, everybody and their mother, and they have a platform. Um, okay, question from the chat. I had a relapse earlier this week. I watch internet pornography. I must get back on the right track. I do not want to be degenerate. So when you have what we, we call a relapse, what's what's going on is that internet pornography in the moment is meeting your needs better than whatever you are substituting for internet pornography. So you've got basic needs. You need to get them met. So some people get their needs met through prayer, meditation, community, camaraderie, say a 12-step program, church, synagogue, but you need to feel connected, right? You need to you know, be living a life that is generally happy, joyous, and free. And so when you have a relapse, it simply indicates that whatever the addiction is, that uh, participating in that addiction in the moment is more effective in meeting your needs than whatever it is that you're doing. So you need to figure out what is it that you're doing that is not meeting your needs and what are healthy ways of you know, meeting your needs for excitement. So I have a need for excitement and I write blog posts, I make uh, podcasts, I do live streams, I have all sorts of ways of, of trying to meet my need for excitement. I watch uh, true crime documentaries, I watch, you know, disaster documentaries, I w watch aircraft crashing uh, documentaries, because that kind of meets that, that, that wicked urge in me for excitement without making me feel disgusted and degraded afterwards, such as I would often feel when consuming pornography. So you're doing the best you can, Rune, with with the tools that you have at your availability. So it's time for perhaps adding some new tools, doing some things differently so that you're more effective at uh, meeting your needs for excitement, right? You need excitement why not a good air crash documentary or you feel um, ill at ease with yourself. So would it be prayer that would help? Would it be meditation? Would it be exercise? Do you need more community? Do you need more people in your life? So relapse to me is a sign that the, the, the addiction in the moment at least is more effective at, at uh, meeting your needs than your regular life. All right back to Michael Tracy. It seems to like dilute the value of media criticism. So I think maybe retroactively what I was putting some value on myself was just the handful of media critics that happen to be smart, right? That happen to be adding something that actually happen to have sort of like an analytical depth to what they're saying that actually is illuminating and does like cut through illogic or um, false consensus or, you know, uh, artificially constructed narratives. Okay, speaking of uh, narratives and the media, let's catch up with Fox News. You have legal cover to if you reelect Joe Biden, the Department of Justice, if it doesn't change its policy, can't indict him because he's a sitting president. 
Uh, if you elect uh, Donald Trump, he could very well grant himself a self-pardon. Mm. And that makes for a rather odd election. Do you think that uh, because President Biden came down so hard on former President Trump for his document uh, collection at Mar-a-Lago, is that part of the reason that the Department of Justice, you know, Merrick Garland felt he had no choice but to uh, uh, appoint a special counsel here? Well, John, part of the reason for the appointment of a special counsel is that Garland had no alternative. I mean, the standard is gross mishandling of classified material. I don't know what else you would call classified documents held essentially in the open for six years and found in a closet, a garage, and your personal library. Uh, there's no... So how did Biden's team get away with keeping this quiet for 70 days, right? Prior to the midterm elections, the Biden team knew that he had mishandled classified information. And... How come this news didn't break prior to the midterm elections? So in the Trump case, you had a tyrant of leaks, you had the FBI raid, right? Why weren't FBI agents present at the retrieval of these classified documents, right? So Biden's lawyers were able to conduct the additional searches. Both sides agreed that Biden's personal attorneys would inspect the homes, right? No FBI agents present. So... Former federal prosecutor Andrew McCarthy says his decision boggles the mind. So you had some of these initial documents were classified at the highest security level, were discovered in an office that didn't open until 2018, meaning they were moved there from another unauthorized location, right? So how come these searches weren't done by federal law enforcement agents such as the FBI? You would think that only agents with the highest security clearances could do this. Instead, the process is left entirely to Joe Biden's private lawyers who do not have security clearance. And they also then get to craft the circumstances of the discovery, like where they were, their condition, but they're easily observable, right? So why are there no federal agents? Right? This is an extraordinary level of trust that is being given to Joe Biden's team. So putting Biden's legal team in charge means there's no public FBI display to equate the Biden document mess to the Trump one. So, yeah, keep the FBI out of it. Much easier to say that uh, Biden is handling things differently. Okay, let's uh, have an eye here. Oh, let's go back to Michael Tracy here talking to Richard Hanania about the news media. Um, now, this isn't to say that I object to the common man having the ability to engage in media criticism. Anybody, anybody should, and though some of those common men the critics will sort of like rise to the top of the heap and prove that they actually are doing something worthwhile. Uh, but I do agree that a lot of it is pretty much uh, worthless. And just a quick anecdote that sort of illustrates part of what I'm talking about here, and I mentioned this recently to somebody else. In uh, June, I think, or July of 2020, I, was, uh, I went on this sort of two-plus-month nationwide sort of journalism trip to go to as many of the uh, George Floyd protest locations as I could, talk to as many people as I could from you know, different backgrounds. Uh, you probably recall that. I think it's my, it might be a, probably around the time we first started uh, mm -hmm. Um And there was one time where I was in Chicago, right, in the blazing hot sun. I believe it was Juneteenth. <laughs> um, I was... I went to two, like, big protests. I spent all day, you know, working. I mean, it's not the most backbreaking work I grant, like, I'm on an assembly line or digging ditches or anything, but, you know, it's what I do for work, okay? Um, and I, at one point, just chatted with a police officer 
and got the police officer's sort of observation about something was happening and just tweeted out just a little uh, excerpt of the, what the officer told me. I don't even remember what it was. Exactly. And I remember this guy, uh, Jeet here, <laughs> you know him. The, oh, um, oh, yeah, I love Jeet. Jeet here, is, Jeet, uh, here, Jeet on, uh, here Jeet on Twitter is the handle. Yeah, right? Jeet, is, um, Jeet is just everything about Jeet is just perfect. Go, go look up Jeet. Oh, I have a love-hate relationship with him. Actually, we sort of, even though we're always, we've been fighting for like eight years, we have like a, <laughs> I sense that we have like some underlying like semi-ironic fondness for oh, each other, but I don't know. That's cute. I wish, uh, I wish you, I wish he, uh, yeah, he's, he's actually, actually like, he's he actually cuts been... on me sometimes, but he, he doesn't quote tweet me. He takes a picture and I just wish Jeet would like, you know, engage directly so we can, we can yeah, have a relationship together. Yeah, he's been nice to me in private. Yeah, cause I, um, uh, I hadn't written for the nation in a while, even though that's where I started in 2010. And I wanted to write something for them uh, in 2020. And he was like an editor there at that point or a writer. And you know, he helped like set up me to be able to write a piece. So I didn't really know who to contact at that point or hadn't been following who was like, you know, the right person to go to. Anyway, so he's done stuff like that for me, and, you know, which I appreciate. But so I tend to, I tend to take in uh, good humor some of what he does. But there was one, this, this one particular sort of uh, jab that he took at me, just rubbed me the wrong way because I put out this little quote from uh, an officer, again, bear in mind, I'm quoting and talking to all kinds of people. It's not like I'm just doing 24 7, um, uh, you know, uh, conveyor belt dissemination of whatever I hear from cops to like promote a pro cop narrative or something. Um, but, you know, it's a relevant part of the story if you're covering the protest movement, right? And so I did that, and then I get, you know, a, um, a repost from Jeet where he's like basically accusing me of saying, accusing me of uh, being a hypocrite, right? Because, oh, most of the time I would never just uh, at face value, you know, take what cops are saying is gospel and spread it out. Like, basically, I'm betraying what I had pretended were my values of like skepticism toward government officials. Which is a pretty weighty thing to extrapolate from one little. Yeah, Tim Michael Grace has an interesting tweet. When I was a reporter, he says, I always ask cops and prosecutors whether they've ever seen anyone framed for a crime. They always said no. Truth is that cops routinely manufacture evidence to frame people they believe to be guilty. So this gets to the bigger issue. The question of today's stream is you know, what should you expect from the news? And so I'm a big believer. I think it's self-evidently true that the more your expectations meet reality, the happier you'll feel and the more sense of an agency you'll feel, the more sense that you have some control over your life. And so when we evaluate whether the media is good or bad, we should evaluate whether the media is good or bad at what. So I tell you that the media is good at reporting what bureaucracies tell them. Right. So you've got the National Football League right now. This bureaucracy is staging some games that I'm watching in the background. So currently the Kansas City Chiefs lead the, the uh, Jacksonville Jaguars 17 to 10, right? And so the National Football League is staging this game. The National Football League is a bureaucracy and the media does a, an accurate job at reporting the score, right? And, and reporting you know, who wins and who loses. And uh, they do a pretty good job also of analyzing why. So another function of the news is to tell you the weather. And so I'm in Sydney and I often I look at the weather on, on my Apple iPhone and it says it's uh, dry and windy outside when I can look out my window and I see it's raining. So all weather forecasters pretty much get their information from the same government agency, right? So government agency, government bureaucracy releases satellite imagery and weather information. And then that's, of course, imperfect. So the news does a good job of essentially reporting what the government tells them about the weather. Now, when the news takes the second step and and stands outside and says, okay, even though the weather forecast is right now it should be dry, it's actually raining, right? that's, that, that's an improvement. So you can't just accept what the government tells you at face value. So sometimes you'll have news... Stations like Hype, Storm of the Century, 
and you've only got like a light pitter patter of, of snow coming down, but everyone's staying home because the news says storm of the century. So do you trust the news or do you trust your lying eyes? So sometimes your eyes are a far more accurate window onto reality than the news. So if there's a topic that you know well, inevitably you'll be more right about that topic than the news because you, I would hope, would have some specialized information while journalists tend to be generalists. So the news gives you essentially what bureaucratics give the reporters and then they hype it to try to make it as exciting and consequential as possible to command your attention. And then against your attention, they sell advertising, subscriptions, or they recruit government subsidies for what they're doing. So when, when the news media hypes a story, this is just a subsection of lying, right? So generally speaking, just like cops and, and prosecutors tell you, oh, I've never heard of anyone being framed, right? Journalists unanimously seem to think that hyping a story is completely justified, but hyping is, is lying. So the news media is routinely lying to you about the relative importance of, of the stories that they're reporting to you, but they want to try to command your attention. So is it more heinous than the way that uh, products, you know, hype their importance? No, not, not necessarily. So when you evaluate, is the news media good or bad? It has to be on the question of good or bad at what? And so when you understand what the news does is primarily report the accounts, the, the documents, the opinions of bureaucrats, and the results of these bureaucratically orchestrated events, then you don't expect the news to necessarily correlate with what's really of most importance going on in the world around you. So the news is good at reporting what bureaucrats tell them, all right? Uh, not so good necessarily at evaluating the validity of what bureaucrats tell them. A little excerpt of a tweet when you have like 280 characters and I wanted to put out an interesting quote, right? And so I just thought to myself, okay, this guy's sitting on his ass somewhere, and I think Saskatchewan. <laughs> I'm in the beating sun in like at like three o'clock in the afternoon in Chicago in the middle of the dark days of summer. I've been like traveling around, you know, trying to like gain an understanding of like a major event that's happening in the country that requires some semblance of reporting to like develop yeah. a more robust understanding of. He's sitting on his ass. I think he's in Saskatchewan. I don't know. Some like Canadian province or part of Canada, where, like nothing ever happens. So he focuses 100 percent on the United States, which okay, fair enough. Um, doesn't it would never he would never even have the notion of doing any kind of reporting on the issue. Now, I'm not saying everybody has to be a reporter, right? And I, I go spend the time where I don't do like on the ground, you know, uh, reporting for, you know, whatever reason that much, although I try to do some. In, over the Come on, Michael, Jed here seems to weigh 300, 400 pounds. You can't expect him to get out on the streets and do reporting, right? Of course of what I am focused on at any given time. But, you know, I'm not saying that I'm like the most intrepid investigative reporter on the face of the earth, but I've done reporting over the years, right? And I was doing a lot of it at that particular period. And I just get this like sniping guy sniping at me out of nowhere who doesn't even, who's in the media, by the way writing for a national publication and like never even uh, had the faintest, you know, uh, idea to get off his ass for once and like maybe go talk to somebody and like get a quote or whatever. Yeah. And I'm just being, you know, raked over the coals because I tweeted a quote and I was just like, I had the same sort of visceral reaction that you seem to be having. You seem to have that kind of prompted this piece and just like, you know what? Screw off. I mean, what do you do? Um, yeah. What are you contributing? And maybe it was a bit uh, like overwrought. But yeah, I mean, when, so when you get stuff like that constantly from like the peanut gallery, um, it does sort of engender this sort of uh, more uh, antagonistic reaction that's just sort of festers in you. And then at some point you kind of have to just let loose. Yeah. I mean, and there's entire, uh, you know, there's entire like media, you know, sites that are just nothing but this stuff, right? That don't contribute anything. There's, it's an entire business model. So most breaking news is of no significance. And I, I'm inspired by a 1984 article by a professor of communications here, Sandra Berman. 
So most breaking news, right? No significance. Most of what's in the news is not terribly significant. All right. So news tends to focus on things like uh, elections, the, the development of constitutions, uh, you know, words used in political doctrines. All right. And so the New York Times, you know, follows, you know, the, the narrative of objective journalism of reporting what government bureaucracies and official statements relate to them. So the New York Times uses primarily you know, official information sources from various, you know, bureaucrats. So the live streamer or the blogger or the quote unquote, the new journalist, right, they will often write more from the individual or speak from the individual perspective. So they would perhaps try to put themselves in as many different situations as possible, try to receive information from all their senses, you know, sight, hearing, touch, smell, touch, right? And they may consider official information sources, but they're not necessarily the most reliable, right? Comments at a drugstore may be far more reliable than official pronouncements from the Department of Commerce. So what the New York Times pegs as news is basically the passage of bureaucratically recognized events through administrative procedures. So the New York Times focuses on elections, government reports, things like that. Now, the skeptic, the, the outsider, the, the blogger, the live streamer, will recognize that there's, there's not necessarily a full correlation between you know, official government reports and what's going on in reality. And so a lot of things are done for symbolic reasons that uh, don't have much real life significance. So Joan Didion, okay, quintessential new journalist, she, she wrote from her own experience of life. And so is the news good? Yeah, it's good at reporting to you what bureaucrats and experts tell it. Is the news good at then evaluating what they're told and checking to see whether it matches up with reality? Not so much. Model. There's a lot of influencers. I mean, people, I think, just maybe they assume, like, the mainstream media is so powerful and, like, you know, all these other people on Twitter don't matter. But, you know, there are really big, you know, liars out there who have hundreds of thousands, some cases, you know, millions of, millions of followers. So, a lot of, you know, a lot of these people are actually uh, influential. Um, yeah, but these people you're talking about, like Ben Shapiro, he's not uh, posing as a journalist, all right? He is a pundit. He is someone who gives people you know, reliably conservative opinions on what's going on in the world around them. And so, yeah, I mean, and like, you know, and like if you just like compare, like the New York Times does not, you know, the New York Times isn't just isn't going to butcher a, you know, they've probably done it a few times in their history, but they're not going to you know, butcher a, a quote like that uh, they did on the, the Saudi guy, right? Um, the Sam Harris, have you seen the Sam Harris uh, stuff that people have been dunking on him on, even though he's not on Twitter anymore? Um, that little clip where he's on some podcast or show where he's talking about um, like yeah. what would have been yeah. the case if like COVID were like a few yeah. degrees so worse he, or something. Yeah, and so like they made it, like, so he goes, uh, he goes, um, uh, you know, we, we, there was anti-vax and he doesn't like anti-vax. And he's like, you know, we got, uh, you know, we wouldn't have had that if COVID killed children rather than uh, old people, uh, mostly. And, you know, that's, uh, you know, he goes, so we got, you know, got unlucky in that respect because, you know, it wasn't children. So like, uh, anti-vax got taken over. Okay. Okay. Like, so like poorly, poorly worded, but then like people take it, uh, you know, Sam Harris, so unfortunate that all these children didn't die. <laughs> it's like, no, he's just making the point. Yeah. Like he's, he's like Sam Harris, the, the point of what Sam Harris was saying is that he was yearning for more children to have died during COVID. <laughs> that was basically like, I agree with some of the, I mean, some of the stuff that. Sam Harris has been banging on about for several years now, especially since Trump came on the scene, has been a bit tedious. I'm not, I'm not a regular consumer of what he does. I went for a little while. Like I, did, like he was, I read his book in like high school on, the, on religion and stuff. So I, I've been familiar with him for some time. I actually do think he... Uh, like he actually also wrote a book on meditation that was sort of influential on me. And I, like, you know, because of that and other stuff, I you know, did meditation retreats and sort of improved my uh, 
emotional welfare to some degree. So I don't, I don't have like just this reflexive uh, antipathy for Sam Harris, and um, and I can recognize that he's been annoying in certain respects. Maybe with regard to some COVID stuff, I don't really know. I don't follow. I'm not that interested in COVID debates at this point, given other stuff that's going on. Um, but yeah, even if you don't like him, or even if you think that like he's obnoxious and imperious uh, on his like vaccine related uh, crusade that he's been on like, against like other members of the intellectual dark web or whatever, to it's not necessary to like watch that clip and conclude that. His purpose in articulating what he articulated there was to long for the mass death of children. Like that clearly was not the purpose of like the you know portion of the argument he was. Getting. So if you put people in their proper genre, they, they're going to disappoint you less, right? You're going to be much more effective in life because your expectations of other people, other institutions, and of yourself will be much more in alignment with reality. So Sam Harris is a hysterical pundit. All right, he's you know, very emotional. Uh, over the top. Uh, I mean, he—he's—I mean, that's—that's that's what he does. He's you know hysterical, um, and and that's that's what you should expect when you, you know, check out Sam Harris. Like Dennis Prager tries to ground his analysis in, in in the Bible, and so you know applying the Bible to what's going on today not an easy task. But that's his calling card, like taking an ethical monotheist approach to the news. And, uh, you know, George Will, all right, conservative academic approach to what's going on in, in the world around us. So crystal light, classic orange drink, all right? It's reliable. I just mix it with water. It tastes like fresh squeezed orange juice. has very few calories. People, however, tend to be much more complicated than most products. But once you put them in their correct genre, right, they're less likely to shock you. You shouldn't expect rabbis to be physicists. You don't expect accountants to be comics. You don't expect the homeless to be Shakespeare scholars. You know, on occasion they might be, but don't expect this and you won't get disappointed. When it comes to a nationally syndicated radio talk show host, you expect them to be interesting to a 100 IQ audience. And uh, that's about it. You don't expect them to be scholars. So you look at the front page of the New York Times, and what you'll see largely are proclamations from bureaucracies. Okay, go to the New York Times right now. Top story inside the Supreme Court inquiry, all right? The production of the United States Supreme Court investigation, which completely failed over who leaked the overturning of Roe v. Wade, right? Most abortion bans include exceptions in practice, few are granted. So this is the experience of people with bureaucracies in anti-abortion states. A hit French novel tries to explain Putin too well, some critics say. So leading members of uh, the culture wars and foreign policy establishment are weighing in on a novel. The U.S. will keep thousands of troops deployed in Romania. All right, this is what's going on with, with NATO. Despite frustrations at Germany, Ukraine expresses optimism it will receive leopard tanks. All right getting what, what bureaucrats are saying. Our startup founder got JP Morgan to pay $175 million for nothing. Right, what's going on in a banking bureaucracy? Ron Klain is expected to step down as White House Chief of Staff. What's going on in the Biden administration bureaucracy? In Omaha, a street came, streetcar named Undesirable by Warren Buffett. Okay, so what's going on in Omaha? City government bureaucracy and Warren Buffett, who's got a bureaucracy under him in investing. The fierce life and sudden death of America's strongest woman. So here, rare individual focus to a story. 
Brazil's defender of the indigenous shares their fight with the world. So this is about a photographer in, in Brazil. Also, you know, her clashes with Brazilian democracy. One of the most influential ambassadors in Washington isn't one. So this is Taiwan's representative. This is a representative of a bureaucracy, the state of, of Taiwan. So she walks a diplomatic line. China calls her a troublemaker who could incite a law. So when you look at the news, it's, again, primarily what bureaucracies are reporting. So during the run-up to the Iraq invasion in 2003, the Bush administration pushed the narrative that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, and the mainstream media, with the exception of Knight Ritter, largely went along with it. The mainstream media didn't do their due diligence. This is where the media does not tend to be so great, right? They're not so good at questioning official sources. So I broke my biggest stories, right, relying on unofficial sources. So starting in 1997, I noticed that there were all these porn stars who were routinely testing HIV positive, and there were no mainstream media reports on this. And I tracked down the most likely source of infection to be Mark Wallace, right? Like, likely patient zero. And so I relied on unofficial sources to break a huge story that uh, a male member of the San Fernando Valley heterosexual pornography industry was you know, transmitting HIV to a dozen or more actresses. I relied on unofficial sources. Eventually, the official sources came along to confirm what I said and turned out to be a big story in Los Angeles and then resonated around the world. Uh, in 2004, I published a story about a rabbi, Aaron Tendler, who was the head of the largest Orthodox synagogue in the San Fernando Valley. And he had had you know, claims of sexual abuse made against him going back decades. And I reported on this. There was no official sources. I got unofficial sources on this. Eventually, I got two women who were students of his at the Yeshiva University Los Angeles Girls High School. And when I was able to get their detailed stories, he immediately stepped out. So I reported primarily on the basis of unofficial sources when the details became undeniable. Then official people stepped in and had this rabbi stepped out. In 2007, I reported that the mayor of Los Angeles was no longer wearing a wedding ring and that his marriage was over. The Los Angeles Times went to the mayor to get his response. He denied it. He essentially lied. But then it quickly became clear that the mayor had a marriage that was finished and that he'd been carrying on an affair with a Spanish language TV newsreader in Los Angeles. And so that was essentially the end of Mayor Antonio Villaraigosa's career. So I essentially ended his career or started the movement that ended his career, thanks to his behavior, uh, based on unofficial sources. And then the, the regular news media followed me, started trying to pile on official sources. So it's a lot easier if you can have official sources because you're much less likely to get sued, right? If you rely on unofficial sources, you're much more likely to get sued. So the news is primarily what bureaucracies report. And if you can't base your news on some bureaucratic piece of paper, you're kind of swimming outside the normal news business because you normally cannot get sued for simply reporting what a bureaucracy releases. So I was reading a few months ago, Paul Pringle's 2022 book, Bad City, Peril and Power in the City of Angels, about corruption between the Los Angeles Times and University of Southern California. 
And so he writes here, a key line in the Pasadena police report was not redacted. The one listing witnesses to the overdose entered there was the name of a single witness. And this was the head of the USC medical school. His relationship to the victim was described as Fred. And the rest of the line noted he was a 65-year-old white male. Finally, I now had an official record that placed this medical dean at the scene of the overdose. Right? The most important element of a tip was now confirmed by an official source. So he had unofficial sources that were irrefutable, but he needed to get that official piece of paper before he had any hope of publishing this in the LA Times, while a blogger could have just relied on unofficial sources. So he says, I now had an official record that placed this medical dean at the scene of the overdose. The pressure on USC now to tell the truth about the dean was about to become crushing. So generally, institutions of bureaucracies do not like to respond to unofficial sources, but frequently unofficial sources much more accurate than official sources. Catching out. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, obviously that's not what he meant, right? And it's, yeah, I mean, it's, and you know, you just have to think like, wow, like when you see all this stuff, it's like the things we can complain about, like the New York Times or Washington Post, oh, they didn't word this correctly. Oh, this source maybe is not reliable. It's just like pales in comparison to like, you know, what big liars, like normal people who critique it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so let me let me do a more um, thoroughgoing pushback just to see how you yeah. reply to this. Because when I first started reading it, I thought to myself, okay, I know at some point he's got to do a qualifier where he says, you know, notwithstanding WMDs in Russiagate, such and such and such. And then, you know, that was basically almost what you said verbatim. Um, so... Yeah, when media got it wrong on Iraq having under Saddam Hussein having weapons of mass destruction, right? That was that was incredibly influential. Right? That that wasn't just oh a mistake. Right. Chabad rabbi turns anti-Semitic slur yelled at him into learning opportunity. Lexington rabbi is sharing his own story after he says a UK student directed an anti-Semitic slur at him on Saturday night. It comes as anti-Semitic incidents rise across the country. LAX18's Ricky Sayer talked with the rabbi about how rather than report the incident to the university, he took a very different route. That is tonight's big story at 530. A menorah in plain sight, standing on his front lawn. A Lexington rabbi was spotted by two men standing on that back porch. And one noticed me, dressed as I am every day, and yelled out, you know, we should kill the... The anti-Semitic slur he used, which we will not say on TV, represents hate and exclusion. It came from... Okay, so yelling, you know, kill the case, that's more serious than, than your average slur, Right. So yelling that we should start killing people, right? Yeah, I can I can see why why there would be a response to that. All right, that's incendiary. From a student partying after graduation. Those words have tremendous violence and crimes behind them. And when you use that language, you associate yourself with those crimes. Chabad of the bluegrass rabbi Shlomo Litvin had to know who said it. He's called to be Okay, I'm not sure that if you use that language when you're drunk at a party that you're associated then with crimes. There's, there's no connection between using this kind of hateful language and actually doing hateful things. As a journalist, I've had my life threatened hundreds of times, right? And, and no one seriously made an attempt on my, on my life. So this is a vast overstatement that by using you know, this kind of ugly language, he's then associated with actually carrying it out, Right. People usually don't mean what they say, don't mean what they say, don't say what they mean. There's, there's simply no empirical connection at a high level. There's no high correlation between the use of this kind of hateful language and then the carrying out of, of genocides. Now, genocides are pretty rare, 
use of hateful language pretty common. Cultivated relationships with his largely student neighbors around UK's Jewish center, teaching them about a religion many knew little about. When I went over there, they told me that one of the students had said that's an inappropriate thing to say, and their friends had gaslit them. It's not a big deal. Why are you being a party pooper? For Litvin, no hateful act should go unchallenged. He waited for nearly an hour outside. Okay, that's nonsense that no hateful action should go unchallenged. A lot of hateful words and actions should go unchallenged. Inside the home. And he sent out friends to try and shoo me away. And finally he came out. He told them how violence against Jews nearly wiped out his family in the 1930s and 40s. I spoke about my great-grandmother's family in Ukraine, murdered with cries of kill the Jews. Violence extends to today, in Kentucky, even with him. I personally have been threatened not by a kid yelling something across the street, but by people who intended to do me harm. According to the Anti-Defamation League, anti-Semitic incidents hit an all-time high in 2021 in the U.S. at 2,717 incidents of assault, harassment, and vandalism, a 34% year-over-year increase. This is a global problem and an American problem. By the end of their conversation, the young man was apologetic. This is one of the best ways it could have gone. I was able to connect with, this, with the student on a personal level. It even ended with an invitation to learn more about Judaism. I said, it's evident from your words you don't have any Jewish friends. If you did, you would never have made that comment. So come make a Jewish friend. Grab a coffee, we'll sit down, we'll talk. In Lexington, Ricky Sayer Okay, I think that's an impressive and appropriate response but by the rabbi. Someone saying, you know, let's kill any group. And I mean, simply aimed at you and your group, that you would want to call them out for it and uh, confront them on it. Yeah, that, that seems appropriate. He didn't report into school authorities. He didn't file a police report. He wanted a face-to-face confrontation with the guy. I think that the rabbi did the right thing there. All right, this is Michael Tracy's critique of Richard Hanania's essay that the media are honest and good. Here's what I would want to ask you. Okay, WMDs, kind of a big deal. I mean, if the American media, which you're venerating as not being uh, deserving of, some of the scorn that's heaped on it or not being a uh, valid target for this kind of all-encompassing consternation that tends to be overrepresented among conservatives, um, because, you know, it's a, ba- it's a fundamentally sort of truth focused or truth-oriented institution, even if it commits failures at some time, sometimes like part of the ethos is to correct those failures, whatever. That's sort of like the, a part of what you're sort of, you're saying here. Well, I mean, WMDs, if like the, if the American media was the key vehicle through which, let's just call it a lie for the sake of argument, right? I know people sometimes quibble with that, maybe not anymore. Let's just say an outright fabrication around the you know, causes belly for war was peddled, you know, crucially by way of this kind of me- uh, broader like ecosystem that you're trying to um, rehabilitate to some extent. Isn't that like a pretty cataclysmic blemish on their record that can't really just kind of be um, tossed aside as like a, as maybe a niggling little um, in, inhibitor, but it actually sort of should frame one's understanding of what the media is as sort of like an organism? Um, and likewise, Russiagate. I mean, it's sort of more complicated because it wasn't as though there was like one central lie akin to WMDs that you could point to as like the discrediting myth that was peddled. But, you know... The, Part of the reason why Russiagate was so insidious is because you would have this accumulation of frenzied, you know, supposed bombshell stories over and over again fed to New York Times, Washington Post in particular through leaks, namely from the intelligence apparatus or the FBI or through like Adam Schiff's staffers or whatever. And then that would then be used to construct this incredibly sort of oppressive in the sense of just its uh, volume and um, saturation uh, narrative that really had some damaging effects that are far ranging and 
I would argue, and I'm you know, working on something that's going to make this point in greater detail, I would argue are kind of central even to understanding what position the U.S. and the world is in now with regard to Ukraine and you know, the risk of nuclear annihilation and so on. Um, and so even if we're just limiting our counterexamples to those two, right, those seem like such potentially cataclysmic failures. Okay. So and so we have brought such damage that I'm not, I'm not, to, to, to toss them aside in sort of the slightly casual way you did seems maybe not particularly justified. Okay, so uh, two things. First, before we get to you know the specifics of these, uh, you know the argument I make is: look, the you know the New York Times has been around for I don't know how long it's been around for, but I know at least 120 years or, or something. Um, you know the media as a whole. So they're they're gonna have you're gonna have a long. I mean, imagine if you were blogging for you know 120 years, how many things you would get wrong? So you know, question you can't just folk, you can't just look through history to get a judgment about the media just by focusing on its biggest mistakes. Now these are you know these are these are big cases, granted. Um, and I think that you know I think that people you know I, yeah I think there's you know many ways they did a bad job. I think people under uh, you know they overestimate how much the media was at fault for these things um, because look. This is intelligence. This is governments claiming and agencies within governments claiming things. Getting the truth is very hard. Now, the WMDs thing, you know, the, the Bush administration, they convinced themselves. They themselves believed the WMDs were there. Now, these were the people who had, you know, the access to the classified information. These were the people who were supposed to, you know, were in the best position to know. So, like, if they thought, you know, if they were able to convince themselves of it, like, it's not like that surprising that, like, the media would do, right? I mean, they don't have But they wouldn't have been able to generate a consensus for war in the... Yeah, a lot of people think, oh, if you've got classified information, you've got the real information. But frequently, the classified information is inferior to publicly accessible information. And just because information comes from a government or a bureaucracy or someone in power, it doesn't necessarily make it more accurate than what people out of power may have. The populace, if they couldn't have funneled the, these fake certainties through the media to construct a narrative that what's then engendered... The media, what's the media supposed to do? I mean, if, they, if, they tell you, if like these background, these government officials are telling you about background, oh, it's sure Saddam has WMDs. Um, you know, like, I mean, I don't... Exercise you know, discretion and exercise skepticism. Yeah, not really exercise discretion and skepticism of these these claims of WMD. Knight Ritter, that, that journalistic enterprise, showed that these reports were false. Journalists generally don't do a good job at critiquing and analyzing what bureaucrats tell them. And don't just mindlessly uh, propagate what you're being fed by self-interested members of the national security apparatus because they're usually full of crap or, or often or full of crap often enough that you shouldn't be so sort of uh, beguiled by them that you sort of become their PR agents. It's pretty, yeah. you know, that's pretty straightforward to me. Or yeah, so I, I, right. I'm, just, yeah, I'm not saying they didn't make mistakes. I'm, I'm saying that, you know, it's, you can understand how this is. It's not just a mistake. It's not like they spelled somebody's name wrong. I mean, it's beyond mistake. Yeah. I mean, they, 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 they you know, they put forward a, a false narrative. That's, that's true. I mean, another thing we have to sort of remember about the time of this funny is that like a lot of the pressure, like for war, the most eager people for the war was not the New York Times. It was like the country music fans uh, canceling the, the Dixie Chicks. Yeah, I mean, there I was a real, on that actually, uh, uh, in 2021, people want to look it up. But, like a lot of the people who today, like and sometimes they're the exact same people. And there are a lot of the same voters who hate the media and will say, look back at WMDs, how they got that wrong. These were the Freedom Prize folks, right? Who were going to call you a traitor. Yeah. You know, and who told everyone to move know. to France. So, yeah, so, yeah. So like, you know, the whole country sort of went insane. Like I think the Bush administration is most to blame. And yeah, the New York Times did a, did a bad job too um, after 9-11. Yeah, okay, yeah. But I mean, I think it has to be put in sort of that context. Yeah, I mean, the Russia gay thing, yeah, I mean, they Trump broke it up. I mean, they, they're at the, you know, they, it made them a little bit crazy. Um, and yeah, uh, okay. More than a little I, bit, I, but that's... I, 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 but I, you know, I, don't, I don't actually think it's as consequential as WMDs. I mean, they did the Mueller report. I mean, the Mueller you know, came back and they didn't have anything to charge it with. And yeah, it distorted our politics uh, for a few years. Well, it cost fewer direct deaths, but it had a similarly kind of uh, sweeping long-term deleterious impact, which I, I argue you can trace to, for example, why there's such an impenetrable consensus right now for just nonstop pro-war, you know, policy in Ukraine because, you know, Putin was public enemy number one, seen as installing the worst fascist menace that ever walked the earth, and Trump subverted our elections. It introduced this well, whole sort of lexicon of, like, de- you know, uh, defending democracy against these interlopers that really, I think, broke brains on, a, on, like, several levels just beyond, like, the core story of Russiagate. Like, it had, like, this kind of uh, multidimensional impact that was really yeah. damaging.
Yeah. Although I mean, I don't think like you know, I don't think like everything that's called Russiagate. That's you know, it's like the Russiagate is like everything from Trump was Putin's spy to you know the, the Russians hacked the DNC, the DNC, right? I don't. That was never proven false. I, I don't know how you feel about. It. You think it's the good reason to believe that the Russians hacked the DNC and leaked it? Um, I think what I said when I read the Mueller reports section on that is that the preponderance of the evidence probably suggests that there was some Russian state affiliated entity that was probably responsible, but. So given that the left dominates almost all of our institutions, including the news media, it's not surprising that the narratives that the news media pushes now primarily from the left, you know, particularly the, the bogus ones. And uh, this is Edward Dutton. Oh, hello, my friend. Oh, uh, my name is Dietrich Staple, and I am professor of social psychology at the Tilburg University in the Netherlands. And uh, I was a little bit busy there because what I'm doing is I'm concocting research, I'm making up data so that the data proves left-wing ideas, environmentalist ideas, to be correct. And I've been uh, working at the, at the moment on a very interesting paper that I'm doing uh, where I show that carnivores are more selfish, and I let people eat meat, are more selfish and less moral than vegetarians. And I think I'm going to get this into a top journal, such as Science or whatever, a really high-status journal. And I've got another paper where I show that if you expose people to bicycles that have been abandoned or you know, that kind of, kind of, kind of thing, then they will become uh, more stereotyping. They will be um, more likely to stereotype about people uh, if they live in environments where there's lots of litter. And I think I'm going to get that in a good journal as well. Now, the, the problem is that um, if you do this kind of thing, then it um, it means that uh, it takes up a lot of the time and it actually would be easier in terms of the time to just write articles, just do the research properly and just publish these normal journals. But the problem there is that you don't get uh, the prestige. You don't get the prestige. You don't get to go in the prestigious, the best journals. It's not so good for your career if you publish things uh, that are not showing left-wing dogmas to be correct. So there's so much pressure on me to show that left-wing dogmas were correct that I spend more of my time making up data and making sure the data looks right superficially, making sure it looks okay, that would be the case if I simply uh, did the research properly and submitted honest research to journals. So that's what I did. And so far, if we move into the future, uh, by the year 2023, I've had 57 of my articles retracted for fraud and for making up the data, which is a record. So what we're basically seeing is a person, all of whose uh, research proved the veracity of left-wing environmentalist ideas, and he did that by making up the data. Because if you don't make up the data, then normally it will prove that conservative ideas and hereditarianism are correct. Hello, 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 and welcome to this edition of The Jolly Heretic. Now, today I'd like to talk about a, a very interesting finding that has come to light on a website called Reversals in Psychology. And this looks at studies which do not replicate, which for which there is only very weak evidence, or are simply fraudulent uh, or, or manipulated. And what it finds, although they haven't actually bothered to do the calculations, I did that, is that overwhelmingly the research which is of, of this kind is research which proves that left-wing or liberal dogmas are correct. In other words, left-wing or liberal uh, dogmas can only be proven correct via fraudulent, uh, manipulated, or generally bad research. But before I look into that, a quick word from our sponsor. <coughs> Oh, well, first, a word from our sponsor. Uh, now, we are all which telling the truth is an example of something that is sacred. Left-wing people are, are high in the, uh, the moral foundations of equality and harm avoidance, but they are low in sanctity, group orientation, and obedience to authority, and therefore, and they're also low in conscientiousness, and therefore one would expect them to be more inclined to lie. They are individualists that are concerned with their individual power, as opposed to people that are concerned with the power and prestige of the group to which they belong. Uh, indeed, they identify uh, to, with members of out-groups, uh, which allow them, of course, to collaborate with these members of out-groups against their in-group to gain individual power. Uh, in a way that is not the case with conservatives. Conservatives identify with their in-group. We know that these people, the left, are higher in Machiavellianism, that is to say they desire power, and they are higher in narcissism, that is to say they want to be worshipped and admired. The reason for this is that they are highly mentally unstable. 50% of young girls that under the age of 30 uh, who identify as extremely liberal have serious mental health problems, um, and therefore if you are mentally unstable like this, then you fear the world and you want to take control of it, and also you have, uh, you have low self-esteem and so you want to be admired and, and, uh, and looked up to as a, as a way of dealing uh, with your sense of low self-esteem. You create a false, vulnerable narcissistic self which tells yourself that you're brilliant. Such people also fear an open fight and therefore in order to attain power they virtue signal, uh, they, they go on about equality and harm avoidance, they covertly play for status uh, which is underpinned by the fact that they are very high, uh, that they have very low self-esteem and so they dare have a clear fight. Now we know that they
Now, this is the Edward Dutton talk about how almost all scientific fraud in psychology just so happens to back up leftist dogmas. You'll notice that a tremendous amount of uh, fraud in, in journalism also just tends to happen to back up leftist dogmas. Right, here's Michael Tracy talking with Richard Ananya. Not proven by, by a, uh, beyond a reasonable doubt by any stretch, even still, a lot of the indictments that were made pursuant to that particular charge, and, and as well as the indictments that were brought by Mueller against like the internet research agencies, so like the troll farms in St. Petersburg and stuff, they were crafted in a way where they, they knew deliberately, uh, they knew that they would never actually have to go to trial. And on the rare occasions where actually some of the Russians that were indicted sought proactively to defend themselves in court, the cases were dismissed. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the stuff that people kind of assume is proven even today with regard to Russiagate and even with regards to like the uh, maybe more like somewhat plausible stuff like the DNC hacking. Still, there's some open questions, yeah. think, at least in my mind. But anyway, okay. that's, not, well, that's not really the most important part. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay. So you, mean, you think even today, you know, at least for positive of the evidence. So you know, a good chance at least that that was true. And then it's like not crazy to ask, like, okay, they wanted Trump to win. Like, it's not crazy to ask that, right, to, to report on, you know, to consider that a possibility. Um, you know, so, yeah, I think some of the bad out reporting was particularly bad. I didn't think the New York Times was that bad. Like, according, Consider it a possibility. But, okay, here, but here's why I have to sort of push back on that to some degree, because one thing that I remember reporting on, I think this was in the summer of 2018, I forget what exactly prompted it, because like every day, or every, at least every week was this new bombshell Russiagate mania story that everybody had to like rush to Twitter to like give their take on, and you know, I remember, because I was seen as like a skeptic every time, you know, when it came out, like, Don Jr. met at Trump Tower with uh, Natalia Villaskaya, this Russian lawyer, now, now what, Tracy? I mean, aren't, you're, you're proven wrong, you idiot. And of course, you know, later, even Mueller later discredited that whole. So let's just take that one example. Okay, that's actually a good, decent point. I don't know how closely you were following this at the time, but in the summer, in like July, I believe, of 2017, it came out that Don Jr. Um, uh, met with this Russian lawyer who claimed to have information on Hillary Clinton at Trump Tower. And that was, that caused like a, one of the many endless meltdowns from that period and was seen as all but conclusive proof that the collusion theory was correct. Um, me and like, you know, Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi and Aramate, we were all dead wrong and just and humiliated. And uh, it, that was just basically the consensus interpretation of that event. And even the, even the Mueller report, which is very flawed in a lot of ways, but even the Mueller report, to the extent that it investigated that incident, basically just undermined any sense that it was at all like, um, inculpating of Donald Don Jr. or proved anything resembling collusion, right? But there was a harm done in the sense that for like a month in January and July in uh, 2017, lots of people were just fervently convinced of a total falsehood that distorted their perceptions of American politics writ large on lots of different levels because the media was so obsessively promoting this story with that, that particular spin. I think that's a bad unto itself, not because I care that much about Don Jr. being wronged, but that's a component of it. I mean, if you're like besmirched wrongly by the media, I mean, you are wronged, uh, but because the, you know, the country was wrong, the popular understanding was wrong. I mean, if what we're talking about valuing here is like putting good information out into the universe, that did the opposite. And so, I don't know, I'm, I'm a bit hesitant to just, uh, you know, sweep it under the rug. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, I agree with you. I mean, I agree with you that there are mistakes, there are narratives that are, you know, harmful and I don't, think that's a, that's a I don't think it was a mistake. I don't think that the correct what do you think word for what happened there was a mistake. I think there was intentionality behind it, not in that they were intentionally promoting what they knew to be factual falsehoods, but that they were so committed to a particular narrative. Bias, right. Right. Yeah, or, that, 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 that it was willfully done. It wasn't as though they committed an innocent mistake. Their intentional acts produced wrong, wrongful effects. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what I mean by mistake. Someone can make a mistake because they're you know, blinded by partisan rage. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's right. I mean, so, you know, my piece is not about... Uh, you know the, the the media being uh, you know like you know perfect uh, just can't can't do any wrong and you know they they will they maintain the highest professional standards again. I, think I say there are entire areas where they're they're just as mad as those people on Twitter you know following around Klaus Schwab. Uh, it's just the idea. The idea is basically, look, blind media hatred is bad, and take it as a whole. Like, take Russia and WBs. Okay, these two things that happened in the last twenty years. You know, put it with everything else in the world, right? Like, you know, we we you sit here and we talk about, you know, oh, the New York Times said this about the Ukraine war, the Washington Post said this. You know, look at the business right. coverage, the economy coverage. It's mostly good. It's mostly useful. It's mostly good source of information, and it's better than you know these people who criticize it and what else is out there. Yeah, no, I agree with you in that regard. Like, even those Russia Gate stories from 2017, 18, like the worst offenders. Like, I can pull up. Like, one-
Right. So a sense of perspective is important. Richard Hananya makes this point in his essay. So critics of, of capitalism don't really offer an alternative, right? Capitalism is a flawed system, but what's better, socialism? So the United States is a flawed country, but uh, you know, which, which great power do you think is doing things more effectively, more efficiently, more righteously? So you have to compare what the United States is doing to other countries in the real world. You have to compare the flaws of capitalism with the flaws of other alternative economic systems. And when you make critiques of, say, the American news media, you have to compare it vis-a-vis, say, other forms of the, the news media. You can't just critique it as falling short of some you know, impossible standard of perfection. One thing that comes to mind is there was this big bombshell report that was leaked to the New York Times, I want to say February or March of 2017, so pretty shortly after Trump came into office, where they were fed these anonymous leaks about um, Russian contacts that people in Trump's orbit had made. Like they, were, they tallied up the number of contacts and like, what is a contact? Like they counted Jeff Sessions shaking Sergey Kislyak and the Russian ambassador's hand at the yeah. Republican convention as a contact. Yeah. Um, so stuff like that. Even when I would read that piece, it's not as though my reaction would have been this entire article is just a lie, right? It's that, no, the presentation of this article and the method by which the information was obtained and disseminated is fundamentally deceitful and causing these wrongful impacts. But it would have been overly nihilistic and wrong unto itself to just dismiss it as a, quote, lie. And that's what a lot of conservatives who are of this bent tend to do. They have this, like, this blanket dismissal of the New York Times, even though, as you point out, like, you'll often catch them like, citing the New York Times for, yeah. to like, bolster their own critique. And yeah, I mean, what would you and I have done? I mean, what the hell would we would have done over this past year without the New York Times? I'm sorry, that's just the case with regard to Ukraine, right? And yeah. it was only because of the New York Times that we know that the U.S. government alleged that basically the Ukraine special forces committed a terror car bombing against the daughter of Dugan, right? Or yeah. that they did these long-range drone strikes in April against the Russian strategic nuclear fleet. So here's an interesting tweet from Richard Ananya. The media is honest and good because most of what it does is not wokeness. It does a pretty decent job of it. Same is emphatically not true for academia in the social sciences and the humanities. And he says here, when it comes to the social sciences and the humanities, trying to discredit and destroy the whole thing is more justifiable. Interesting perspective. Um, and on and on and on, stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, if you're just going to then denounce the entire institution as, you know, 100% irredeemable and you have no alternative and you're just in the peanut gallery and, like, if you log on to Breitbart or, like, Stephen Crowder or whatever, all you're getting is, like, nonstop making fun of college students with blue hair, which, you know, I can enjoy as much as everybody now and then, but, like, that's not going to really inform you much about important topics elsewhere in the world. Um, yeah. And, you know, you're, uh, I think I agree with you that they've uh, lost the plot. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that stuff, like, you know, I hate, I came out of academia and I hate, I hate the looks. I mean, I really hate their, you know, I hate their stuff, but it's like, it gets all. So is the news really the best way of finding out what's going on around the world? Often you'll find out better information by talking to people, by getting unofficial sources of information, by reading a book, by listening to a podcast, by watching a live stream. So there are plenty of dissident or fringe sources of information that are frequently much more accurate than mainstream sources of information. So it all depends on which sources of information you consume and how critically you evaluate them. Well, after all, how, how many times can you read a story about a, a college student saying, you know, uh, uh, you know, licking an ice cream cone is white supremacy? Like, okay, like I've seen like a million, <laughs> version, a million versions of that story. And I'm like, okay, I, I get it. Like, you know, you think these people, they just, they just have a, I don't know, it's like maybe there's some people who just like eat the same kind of meal every day for like their whole lives. I think it's like some, somewhere like those people. They just want to hear the exact same thing every day, you know, forever. Um, and, you know, there's nothing, I consider nothing uh, valuable there. And you're, you know, you're absolutely right. And so, 
you know, you know, the question is, you know, all of us who are thinking people who uh, read the media and consume the media and we critique it because, you know, all smart people have to have some kind of critique of the media. I mean, they're not going to be perfect. We need to think about what's the what's the correct language to use. Like, how should we talk about the press? You know, how, how should we uh, uh, engage with it? Like, I mean, I tell you, maybe you don't hang out with many as many right wingers as, as I do, but it, it's vicious. I mean, it's like they're the enemy. Some of them just have a blanket rule. Never talk to a journalist like they're just, you know, they're just your enemy. They hate you. Um, you know, it's just kind of like, yeah, exactly. New York Times. Maybe, uh, folks, and that's just unhealthy. And I but really they don't have journalists. That. They don't have a handful of like, you know, uh, heterodox journalists or whatever term they use that they actually do like. Yeah, so they don't really believe their own rhetoric if they're saying never talk to any journalist. Yeah, I mean sometimes, and sometimes they're you know sometimes they, they don't they don't know enough to know. Like when they say never talk to Barry Weiss. Yeah, no, of course, you know, it's not it's not Fox News, right? That is the that is the enemy. It's, it's the it's the left wing. Uh, it's the left wing press. But you see it all the time. Like don't you know don't trust the media. There's no you know like they you know, they'll say here's WMDs. Okay, so never believe anything you know they they say again. Some people are are not reading the New York Times. They're just reading Twitter and they're seeing the dunks on like right. the bad stuff that comes from New York Times or BuzzFeed um, or whatever. Uh, and you know these people have a very very distorted view of the world. And so I try to provide a corrective. Yeah, and one area there is I'm almost positive that the New York Times would love to have like maybe a minority, but you know, a healthy minority of staffers who were, you know, generally speaking, conservative, right of center, something, but were competent journalists and were smart and had analytical insights and like just like a general acuity for the craft. Um, I think that I, I could very easily imagine like the management at the New York Times actively desiring that. And I mean, look, I mean, they, they, they have tried to recruit columnists over the years that are conservatives. I mean, Ross Douthat, I mean, he has, he knows how to uh, keep it within certain limits. I'm not saying he does this arbitrarily or just to be an appeaser or anything. Um, but, you know, he does have, you know, full-fledged conservative worldview, even if he's kind of more uh, congenial than some others. And, uh, you know, he's, they hired him, I think he was, he's ridiculously young, I think, young, I think he was like 29 or something when they hired him as a New York Times columnist. And so there's like a, and that's been like sort of a recurring tendency. I mean, I don't think they always hire the right people. I mean, David French, please. Um, but, you know, you know, I, you know, I've seen Daniel McCarthy, you know, the former editor of the American Conservative. He has, uh, you know, smart guy, you know, competent guy, not like some just crazy yeah, bomb blower. He, he, he's, he's got stuff in the New York Times yeah. now and then, and so lots of others. I mean, yeah. so this idea that there's just this prohibition on any sort of featuring of conservative thought in the New York Times is just not true. But yeah, they're not going to have like some just wild rant uh, that's like not factually grounded <laughs> that would maybe like play to the conservative masses and like parts of that audience and convince them that the New York Times is hospitable to them. They have like higher standards. And I think they would probably genuinely desire for more conservatives to be able to meet those standards. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, a lot of people, they have, you know, they get confused because they think, oh, the New York Times doesn't pay attention to me or these liberals don't engage with me. And it's often because, like, you know, you're not, you're not really contributing anything to the world, right? It's not because you're conservative, right? It's like a lot of people who are conservative will blame that for, like, you know, people not taking them seriously, people not wanting uh, to deal with them. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, I looked up just for the article and I wrote about it. I looked up how many times I've been cited in the New York Times, Washington Post, you know, uh, like, you know, 10, 11 times between, between them. And then a bunch of research that CSPI does, I mean, multiple times. And, you know, every single time, you know, it's been good. I mean, I, you know, it's been, it's been fair representation. I don't get that from people on Twitter. Uh, um, usually. Um, and so, yeah. I, and so, you know, this is, uh, you know, I've benefited from engaging with the media and I think, you know, other people should too. Uh, what's your experience? I mean, do they, do they have, they, like, does the Times Washington Post have you been mentioned? Um, How do you feel about it? I think as a whole, it might be a slightly more negative than you just because, like, if I'm going to be cited in the New York Times somewhere, it's not because, like, I have, like, research that I'm presenting to them, like, from my think tank or however, you know, your um, deal could be best described. Uh-huh. Um it's mostly because they are like um, glomming onto some, you know, probably Twitter generated controversy that I'm involved in. There are there have been exceptions when the motor. Okay, I have to run out. Talk to you guys later. Bye bye.